All right, good morning to you. Welcome to Village Church. If you are new, a uh, special welcome to you. My name is Mark, one of the pastors here in the church. Good to have you. Um, if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, that is where we are in the series on the gospel of Matthew, where this is like a biography of Jesus in the first century. One of his disciples, years after Jesus has died, resurrected, ascended into heaven, sits down to write an account of his life. And we've been studying it for now in January, it'll actually be three years. I did the math the other day. Three years in one Bible book, uh, which is cool because that's kind of what we're about as a church, just preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse by verse. And last week we saw the beginning of kind of a three-part thing uh, that's going down in the Gospel of Matthew, which is there's a group of people, now that Jesus has started to kind of raise questions about the kingdom and what it means to actually connect to the God of the universe and push back against worldviews and systems and religion, there's groups of people now coming to him saying, listen, our whole, the whole thing we've built, the whole empire of our life, the way we do money and sex and family and work and all the rest of it is being challenged by you. And so now we got some pushback. And so last week we saw the Pharisees with their pushback. They came at Jesus and said, we want to we try to distract you. So there's a series of games that people play uh, when it comes to God and when God starts pushing on our life. And one of the games that people play is we try to distract God. He says, hey, I want you to do this with your life. I want to push you to do this or challenge you to do this or move there or do something big and drastic of the renovation of your heart, mind, soul, whatever. And what we do is we, we say, yeah, but, and we try to distract. So last week we saw the political distraction. And we said, sometimes when God starts pushing on us or someone in your community group starts pushing on you or, or pastors start calling things out in your life or whatever, you try to distract and you say, hey, what about Trump? And then everyone gets distracted for the next two hours. And that's what we try to do metaphorically, symbolically in our life is we're like someone's pushing on us and we try to distract them. So now, so we saw that in politics uh, last week. So now, and they said, of course, who's going to pay? What do you pay the coin to? Caesar to Caesar and so on. Now they come in and they don't go at politics. Now another group comes in and they go at theology. And they come and they say, let's distract God by having a theological conversation. And so some people will raise the political issue, and Jesus' whole answer was what? You can have good politics, but still die and go to hell. And so I don't want you to just be focused on politics. I don't want you, your social media feed where the only thing that you think matters in the world is bringing the kingdom of God into the present by way of political statements, by way of financial things, your stance on immigration, your stance on this. God's saying there's deeper things at stake here than your opinion on this, and that is not what's going to bring in the kingdom of God ultimately. It's a part, of course, politics is a part of the kingdom, but it's not, the, it's not salvation. And now they turn it and they go, but what about theology? And Jesus is going to say, listen, you could have really good theology on something. You could get distracted by it and still go to hell when you die because having good theology isn't necessarily the way to salvation either. So the way that these guys raise this question, look at verse, so Matthew 23 to uh, verse 23 says this, the same day, so Jesus is having a bad day, the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Uh, I didn't grow up in the church, but just right this moment when I read that, I just thought of my buddy who did grow up in the church and they taught him little stories. Uh, they used to sing him a song and they say something about the Sadducees uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Uh, anyway, that just popped up, right? Now, now here's what's important. Um, the, the reason that they don't believe in the resurrection needs explanation. We're actually going to spend more time on that statement than you possibly could imagine. So underline 
that statement for a second. There is no, they came to him who say there is no resurrection. The reason that they say there was no resurrection, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of good historical studies have been done. N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, an 800 book, 800 page book, talks about the idea that they, it's not that they just didn't kind of believe in miracles <clears throat> or whatever that used to be taught. It's that they had a lot of political power and they had a lot of religious power. And of course, resurrection means an overthrow of power structures. And when you're holding power, you don't want to actually believe in resurrection. That was one level. The second level was, is these guys didn't believe in the whole Bible. So most Jews at the time believed in everything from Genesis all the way down to Malachi as the inspired word of God. They believed in Ezekiel. They believed in Isaiah. They believed in the prophets. They believed all the scriptures. The Sadducees were a group of people who only studied and believed the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, the Torah, the law, uh, <clears throat> Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so because they did, they never saw resurrection theology in the first five books of Moses. Now it's there, once you kind of go back after you, you, most Jews can find it, we're going to see that Jesus kind of finds it in a unique way. But the first five books of the Bible, resurrection theology really gets developed in the prophets, in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Those are the major resurrection chapters. And of course, these guys don't even believe those parts of the Bible. So among the three or four things I want to actually unpack in our time, the first one is just to understand this, that I, I want you to have as an authority in your life the scriptures. Now, and that's what these guys didn't do. They didn't take the whole scriptures and say, these things are the ultimate authority in my life. They pick and cut it, picked and choose the way, I'm going to change this, I'm going to take this one, I'm going to take this one. And that's what I don't want you to do. And my, and my, my, I mean, I've had an interesting, uh, and, and, th and this happens in life. You have uh, difficult weeks. You have heavy weeks. You have, and, and in my job, there's a lot of like decisions to be made and books to read on leadership and strategy and theology and structures and hierarchy and mission. And should we do a campus here? Should we do a that? How do we develop leaders? What do we do with this scenario? And that's a really heavy world and it's a complex world. And some weeks that is over bearing as you have those in your own life. And I'll tell you what happens. In weeks like that, you question your own uh, abilities. You question everything. You don't know if that's the right call. You don't know if that's the right call. But then, in regard to my job, the, the two minutes before I walk out here is freeing. And I'll tell you why. Because all I'm trying to do out here is in the midst of the fog of life, in the midst of the fog of leadership decisions and things that are painful and whatever, the scriptures are, are the thing that I look at and go, okay, th this is solid, right? This is, this is true, this is right, this is solid. So if I can just come out and be under these, then I'm good. And it's, and it's the kind of the, the time when I feel the most like myself, like the most like this is, what, this is true. Everything else is a maybe. And I'm telling you, in your life, when you're going through the nonsense, the storms, the pressure, the complexity at work, in your marriage, and whatever it is, I want you to build your life on the scriptures, on the Bible. That's not old school. That's not like, well, yeah, but now we got Twitter. Don't be an idiot. Twitter's awful. Don't build your life thinking, oh, don't worry, I got good books. I can read blogs every day. I can listen to podcasts from morning to night from preachers. Don't build your life on leaders and preachers and podcasts and Twitter feeds. Build your life on the scriptures, right? The Bible, this is what's true. 
This is what's solid. This is the only thing you've got at the end of the day. People will let you down. Structures will let you down. Churches will let you down. At the end of the day, you come back here, you go, okay, I'm going to believe this from beginning to end. This is where it's at. This is solid. This ain't foggy. This ain't loose. It's not half true, quarterly true, yeah, but, italic, footnote, none of that. Fully true, fully authoritative, fully powerful. And that's what they didn't do. That's why Jesus pushes back and, he, and his answer to them in verse 29 is, you are wrong. I love that. You know, meek, mild, seeker-sensitive Jesus. You are wrong, right? You are wrong. Why? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I know you have authority. I know that you're leaders. Here's your problem. You don't actually know or trust or lean in to the Bible. That's his first point. You don't actually even know it. You don't, it's not part of your life. And he's scared for them. And some of you, the scriptures are not a powerful, formative part of your existence. And he pushes back and says, this is what's got to be. This has to shape everything you are, everything you do. And so the minute people try to play games with God, the minute people try to distract him with theology, he pushes back and says, wait a minute. You don't even know the scriptures. You don't even know the Bible. I used to, I mean, I did young adult ministry for six years. I was a young adult pastor. And um, this was like, this was a game that they played. I would sit them down and look at a guy and say, hey, listen, you need to stop sleeping with your girlfriend and get right with Jesus. And he would go, what do you think about predestination? And I just wanted to, like, poof, punch him in the face. But, you know, in the name of Christ, spiritually. Just, um, because, because you're trying to distract me. You're trying to play with me. You're trying to manipulate me. I'm trying to call out something in your life, and you're asking some random thing. I would sit a girl down and say, stop being defined by what you look like. Stop caring about what other people have, uh, think about you. Understand that you are a new creation in Christ. And these things need to happen in your life. You need to stop with the materialism or the this or the greed or whatever. And she would go, yeah, but you know that passage in 2 Chronicles doesn't line up with the passage in 1 Chronicles. Is the Bible actually true? And people raise irrelevant questions to dis all the time we do this. And Jesus pushes back and he says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't have to actually base your life on the scriptures at all. And so you've got to be able to work this out in your life. And so the Sadducees were these guys who didn't believe in resurrection. Jesus is going to prove that resurrection is actually true. Now notice, here, here's what he says. <clears throat> for in the resurrection, verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry. Now he's responding to a question I'll, I'll get to in, in a few minutes. But um, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he's saying, um, no one is married in heaven, which for some of you is like, oh, shucks. Others of you are like, sweet, can we get there now? Um, verse th 31 says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Fascinating that his proof text isn't from the prophets. It's actually from Exodus chapter 3. He proof texts them and proves to the Sadducees using their own Bible, using the scriptures that they recognize as authoritative within the first five books of Moses. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not, uh, he is not God of the dead, 
but of the living. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, don't you understand the resurrection reality? Don't you understand that in the end, see here's, the Sadducees had this theology where there was no resurrection and they were kind of seen as like these, these guys who, oh, that silly resurrection theology. Don't you know that we just kind of all die and we become spirit people? Kind of what a lot of you grew up on if you grew up in the church is kind of this idea that we live our life now and then we die and we become a disembodied spirit who go off to a, 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 a spiritual world with clouds and babies with diapers and, you know, all, all of that kind of world. And that's what heaven's going to be like. And so the problem with that is, is of course, is A, it's not biblical theology, which I'll talk about in a second. But secondly, just psychologically, the, most of you don't really get excited about that because the images you've been pitched are music, babies, clouds, disembodied spirits. And you're like, I don't like babies. I don't like music. I don't like being disembodied spirits. You don't have an appetite for that. And the reason you don't have an appetite for that and the reason you don't get excited about the concept of heaven is because you've been told that that's the reality. But here's the thing. God has wired you to be physical. And trying to get an appetite for a non-physical, platonic, dualistic, disembodied bliss for hundreds of millions and billions of years is like trying to get an appetite to eat sand. It's not the way you were designed. You were designed to eat food and love food and love the, the quality and the taste. You weren't designed to pick sand up and eat it. In the same way, God designed you to be physical in the garden, toes in the soil, the grass, the mountains, the beauty. And what Jesus and the New Testament theology is, is not of death and you go off to be a spirit person for the rest of eternity. That's in an intermediate state where we die and go and be with the Lord. But the final state is of resurrection. It's Romans 8, it's 1 Corinthians 15, it's Revelation 21 and 22. When, when Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and joins itself to earth and we get resurrected, our bodies get resurrected. There's a restoration of all things. It's very similar. See, some of you, you gotta, you gotta think about this. Uh, your children, your children, my kids, all right, I got three daughters. They can literally go jump on a trampoline for, for, for three hours, jump on their bicycle, go around for another two hours, come inside, eat, you know, uh, tangle with each other inside the house, then go back out on the trampoline for two hours, go back out on their bike for three hours. Now, that was me as a kid too. Some of you, you look at children, you're like, my goodness, how do you do that? Because some of you guys get hurt in your sleep. Like you literally wake up and you, your leg can't move, all right? You haven't even done anything yet. That's because you're old, all right? And the reality is, is restoration and resurrection is about, this is why the passages in Isaiah say, you're going to run like a kid again. Everything's sad and broken in your life, in the world. Evil, destruction is going to be reversed, not just blown up, not just nuked, because if that was the plan, see, here's the thing. Resurrection theology is about a restoration of things that are physical. Jesus is the prototype. And so we're physical creatures, and we get back restored with bodies, physical bodies, where we get to feel the soil in our feet and the grass in a restored, resurrected earth, just like resurrected body, and we have an eternity that is physical, not non-physical. 
because God created us as physical creatures. It's more like the theology of Lord of the Rings. I'm going to show you a, a clip from The Return of the King where uh, Gandalf's sitting there with a hobbit and they think it's the end and they're going to die. And he gives them a picture of what actually happens after death. And it's far closer to the Christian version of heaven than some of us have been taught growing up, which is, okay, everything's just spiritual. Everything's just, you know, kind of like a, just a white room and like an apple store or something. That's your vision of heaven. It's just like, right? Uh, and then Gandalf throws it down and gives him a bit of a different image. I'll show you. Okay, so he gives the image of, a, of a, a swift sunrise and a green shore and physicality. That's more the image of heaven that the Bible lays out rather than a complete spiritual disembodied bliss. Because here's what you've got to understand. That's a picture of restoration and resurrection. And the reality is, if God just brings everybody to a disembodied spirit world, then in, in a sense, God lost. Meaning, in Genesis 1 and 2, he created us to be physical people. He created us to be physical beings, to interact physically. But if, when sin and Satan and death entered the picture, he said, okay, now the game plan is to make everything non-physical and bring everybody to a, you know, a non-physical spirit world, then in a sense, God lost. So he can't lose. He, he doesn't get to switch up the rules. I remember sitting with my, uh, my buddy and I are both film buffs. And a, a few years ago, we were sitting having dinner with our wives and we started arguing about, I like to, you know, think that I know everything about movies and movie trivia and so on. And so I'm sitting there talking and we, and we were having dinner. And of course the wives were enthralled with our conversation about who directed Alien. And, um, and uh, he goes, well, Ridley Scott directed Alien. I said, no, James Cameron directed Alien. And he's like, no, he didn't. I'm like, yeah, he did. And so we made a bet. I'm like, hey, I'm going to bet whoever loses pays for dinner. Okay, fine. So we pull out our phones. We're like, da-da-da-da. And then I looked up, and I would go, oh, my goodness. Ridley Scott directed Alien. Uh, James Cameron directed Aliens. So then my mind started going, oh, oh, oh. So I went, oh, you said Alien. I thought you said Aliens. Because of course Ridley Scott directed Alien. See what I did there? And, and then he's like, you know, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. And so we're arguing the wives just paid and walked out. Um, but the reality is, what, did I, what was my only choice? I lost. So what did I have to do? I had to change the rules. Switch it up on him. 
If all that happens when we die is we go to a disembodied spirit world, that's God. Oh, man, I wanted you to be physical. I wanted you to have soil. I wanted you to have grass and mountains and sunrises. But you know what? Oh, man, Satan came in. He ruined everything. So now I'm going to take you to an Apple store, and you're going to sing for the rest of your life in a disembodied spirit world. This is not God's plan. His plan, he's saying, is restoration, resurrection. Not to give another movie analogy, because <clears throat> I try to save you from them. It's like uh, I have to hold myself back most weeks. But uh, I was thinking about this. You know Moana? Uh, have you seen Moana? I don't know if you've seen Moana. So my kids took me to Moana, and I, and I love these movies. But here's where Moana was different and deep for me. Um, Moana, there's a lot of, most stories, even Lord of the Rings, most epic stories that we watch, that we write, um, have an evil, and then they want to defeat that evil. Here's where Moana is so deep for me. Um, the evil Tafiti um, that needs to be defeated in Moana, the story actually doesn't defeat her. It restores her, which is fascinating. And I sat my kids down, and I said, you know, the whole journey of Moana, she gets there, and there, it, Tafiti is like this big fire demon who she meets at the end, and the, you know, there's this great scene, the waters part, and she starts crawling after, and Moana's sitting there with like the heart of Tafiti in her hand, Tafiti in her hand, and she's saying, hey, listen, and she comes, and she doesn't, she doesn't look at her and say, okay, now you're dead, now I'm defeating you, now you're destroyed, the world can, she actually puts her heart back, and she says, you're restored, and the evil personage in the whole story, the antagonist actually gets redeemed, and that is so unique. And I sat my kids down and I'm like trying to pull gospel out of it. They're like, Dad, it's just a cartoon. I'm like, no, man. There's something else going on here. Where she looks at that monster and she's like, Tell me my eyes and find you. And this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who Shut up. <clears throat> um, it's a restorative story. It ain't, let me pull my sword out, cut your head off. It's let me give you your heart back because you don't even know who you are. The story of the scriptures is one where, where, where evil things, of course there's some things that don't ultimately get restored and redeemed. Satan, there's still Satan, there's still a hell. But I'm talking the corruption, the decay, the travail, you get, you get your, 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 your friends and loved ones who know Jesus back. You get the fellowship back. You get all the things that have happened, all the destruction gets reversed and comes untrue. Even if, you, even if you're like a Sadducee, here's my point. Even if you're a Sadducee, and you don't believe in resurrection, and you don't believe in, in a restoration of all things in the end, you should want to. You should wish, you should hope that this is true. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's citing him and he's saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching because they looked at him and they went, man. So I'm, I'm asking the question, are you astonished at the teaching of Jesus? Do you take your life and go, I gotta reorganize my life around the reality of how do I participate in this great restoration, this great 
where he's going to give you, the earth is going to be filled with every pleasure you can imagine, every delight you can imagine. You should be asking yourself, how do I actually, how do I actually participate? Because here, here's the kind of pleasure and delight. See, here's, here's the story they raise. Verse 24, go back up to how they try to get him and trap him. Verse 24 says this, teacher, Moses said, so back, this is back up to the Sadducees challenging him. If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is from Deuteronomy. Now, there were seven brothers among us. So here's what they're going to do. They're going to tell him a story that makes the resurrection look stupid. They're going to try to show him how dumb and, and childish it is to believe in the resurrection. Okay? So they tell him a story. If you think, so according to the law, if I'm married to a woman and I die and I have a brother, my brother has to marry her. Because, of course, back then, it's like a woman couldn't work and couldn't survive without a husband, right? And so, um, so I die. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? Don't worry. I got my brother. Uh, he can marry you. And so that was the system. So, ladies, picture that, all right? Your brother-in-law, hope you like him because that's who you're going to get. So, um, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. So now they tell this story. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So, to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection there, first off, what is this woman doing to these guys? Like, she went through seven, they all died. Like, she's a sociopath. Or her cooking, I don't know, whatever. She's killing these guys somehow. She's in, this, in their sleep. After them all, the woman died, finally, thank God. Uh, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Right? So who, it's trying to get her. Oh, it's so silly if she had seven wives in heaven. Who, who's she going to be married to? Is she going to walk around with seven brothers? Oh, how silly of your theology, Jesus. And that's when he pushes back and says, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he gives his teaching. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He doesn't mean like androgynous uh, 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 spirit beings with wings. Some people with really bad theology have said, that's what he's saying, we're all gonna turn into angels. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, we're gonna be like angels in the way, in the context of the question you just asked, which was in regard to marriage. They're gonna be like angels in the sense that they're not gonna be married in heaven. Why? Why will they be married in heaven? He said, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? See, here's the reality. And I'll, uh, I'll close with this and pray for us. The reality is, the reason there's no marriage in heaven is because we have a pleasure that actually eclipses marriage. Um, I, I, I was reading uh, uh, of a guy who is a Christian high school teacher, and he sat with his class, and he did a, a survey, and he said, what are the things that above everything, of course, you're, you're Christian high school kids, if you were told that you were going to die in a week, what are the things you would want to do? And the survey came back, and there was three top things that these high school kids wanted to do. The first one was skydive. The second one was go on vacation, like go on, uh, like travel. Um, and the third one was have sex, of course, because, you know, some of them uh, were sitting there as virgin kids. And, uh, 
And he said, you know, it's so powerful. Sex is so powerful. The idea of companionship physically is probably the greatest pleasure that we have on earth. And what Jesus just said is heaven is so pleasurable and so delightful that it eclipses the greatest thing that you and I have in this earth. The greatest thing, the greatest thing we can think of, the most powerful thing we can think of actually is retired because we get something better. And so some of you, you gotta, you got to understand to be drawn in to life and the resurrection, to understand that Jesus came and died on a cross for your sin, rose again from death himself to, be the, to, to have victory over Satan, sin, and death, to restore and give us a way to actually connect to God and experience the pleasure and joy of resurrection, new physicality again, where we not only just get, um, just get things restored to us, but there's just, it's, it's a consolation, it's a restoration of all the pain pain and the agony we face, losing loved ones, family, parents, kids, spouses. Resurrection holds out a hope to say, this isn't all there is. See, if you're a secularist, then all, all of this is just done. We just go into a dark, every pain you experience, every tragedy you see, every awful thing that you have in your life is over, and, and that's it. It's done. But if resurrection is true, then it says, no, there's something else coming. But Jesus is the way to get there. And so the reason there's no marriage is because there's an ultimate marriage in the end. Jesus marries his people, the church. He is the groom. We are the bride. And guys, don't, you know, get creeped out. You're like, ah, bride, that's a weird image for me. I don't want to marry Jesus. It doesn't mean you as an individual are going to marry Jesus. Don't worry. Right? The church has kind of done a bad job with this teaching. And it's, you know, it's gone into like Song of Solomon. And Song of Solomon is so erotic, right? Where people, it's like, oh, I want to, you know, climb your breasts and do all these amazing, you know? And so people are like, oh, this can't be in the Bible. This must be about Christ and the church. And it's all metaphor. It's like, yeah. right? That's creepy. It's not about that. And we've done a bad job with that. He's not talking about marrying you as an individual. Jesus marries the church collectively. We collectively are his bride. And he comes down and marries us. And there's a wedding feast. And the whole Bible climaxes with a wedding where we are all there, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all mar individual marriages collapse and are gone because we collectively marry the true groom. The one you pine for every time something happens in your marriage. Every time there's dissension. Every time you fight. Every time the companionship corrodes. Every time somebody lies. Every time there's something in you that pines for a perfect marriage. The reason that's there is because there is one. And it's coming. And it's Jesus to you. And me, the covenant people of God, together, collectively. So every time you struggle in your marriage, let you come and just pray and go, this is because I know there's resurrection coming. I have a pining because I know there is something perfect. And in the end, that fellowship and that communion with Jesus is what you're pining for, every single one of us. Father, I pray that those hearts and minds in this room that don't know the peace and joy and pleasure of what is coming in Jesus would feel it and know it and would actually trust you and reach out to grab a hold of faith in you and your work and what you've done on the cross for them. That the pining for truth and consolation and restoration would lead them to move away from the position of the Sadducees and into a position of trust and faith in you, Jesus.
in what you've done. Let us have the courage to actually move toward you and trust in you. Those people who keep putting it off, making fun of Christianity, having the posture of a Sadducee in this moment, making fun of God, making fun of heaven and hell and the Bible, that, that Jesus just wouldn't have it. He pushed back and he said, you're wrong. You're wrong. There is life to be had in this God who offers it. And I pray that people would embrace it. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.